Hi, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the Biodiversity Podcast uh, by Teasels. And today's episode is uh, one that's been in the planning for literally two, two and a half years pre-COVID. Um, but I'm, I'm glad to say I've uh, finally got the next guest on the podcast, somebody I've wanted to have on for ages. Um, if you were at the Beth Chateau Symposium only a few weeks ago, um, you might have seen a, a cameo appearance uh, from him. Uh, but we've uh, a bit uh, no more filler. Richard, uh, it's Richard Scott of the National Wildflower Centre. Hi, Richard. How are you? Yeah, pleased to be here. Thanks. Thanks very much for asking me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the chat. Good stuff. Good stuff. So, um, so I assume that my uh, my listenership would know a little bit about you, Richard. But for um, three or four people in China that don't know who you are in this in this in this sector. Could you want to give us a bit of a, a bit of an introduction to yourself? And uh... well, I, I would just say I've, I've been very fortunate to have been on like a journey of what, what we you know, what we've called creative conservation, um, creative ecology, which you know it stemmed from like an evolution from um, you know being interested myself as you know like um, as a student and stuff, and then getting involved in like probably a little bit more experimental work, and then I was very lucky to work. Um, for Landlife, a great environmental charity in Liverpool for actually over 25 years, which did then um, win funding from the Millennium Commission in 2000 to build um, the National Wildflower Centre in Liverpool. Um, and subsequently, uh, that is now part of the Eden Project. So it's it's how you add these energies up together. But it's been a sort of urban... Um, it's an urban wildlife ecology experience, but it's really interesting how those creative experiences of bringing nature to the city, which is a lot of what we've done, is also about taking it to lots of other places. And the messages of doing all that is especially relevant to the countryside as as, as much as anywhere. In actual fact, and now there's all this wilding energy. I think it's 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 kind of important to share these experiences because rather than reinvent the wheel and um, join up new dots. And old dots, I guess. So you skirted over it. What was your uh, what was your um, your path? You said you went to college. Where did you train? What was your sort of? Uh... I did. I went to. Um, I was originally interested in art. Actually, I was. I was. Um, there was quite a lot of pressure on me to go to art school, and but I was also interested in, in um, you know, like just just wildlife and nature, and I'd you know had kind of an early introduction through wildflowers and stuff. Mm -hmm. My mum came from a very rural place and, you know, as kids, little kids, we were taken to, you know, almost in a gypsy way to pick violets um, in woods and copses <laughs> in, in Lincolnshire. And that had a big impact on us. We used to leave posies on people's doorsteps and things. It was quite, you know, it was quite sweet. But it, it also, you know, like later we realised a lot of the places that she'd remembered were now that just pocket handkerchiefs and... Um, you know, and it was that thing about, you know, and how do you put it back? So I went to university college and did like effectively like biogeography of ecology and, um, you know, witnessed some of the early kind of ecological parks in London, um, which had happened under that kind of Ken Livingston era. And then... And what were they? What were they? they? Sorry, so, so just a well, bit Well, they were originally places like uh, for, for people... Um, who, who, who don't know um, places like William Curtis Ecological Park, which was like by Tower Bridge, actually, and, and uh, 
was it was just on you know kind of vacant space and was being used very early on for like creation you know habitat creation work really so i i witnessed that um and was quite excited by it and then um when i left university i was kind of looking to do something along those veins and um ultimately i did did a little bit of work in derby but then stumbled across um after a little bit of like research plot stuff which it was was interesting but it's it, again it was a very fortunate to stumble across um grant lusk and particularly at land life and mm. um and be fascinated by the fact that you know they'd they'd been founded in 75 which was quite a long time before that as i was you know so i found them in the early 90s kind of thing and they were officially you know the, the first urban you know wildlife ecology group i think in pretty much in in britain mm. um they wrote they wrote a actually a nature conservation strategy for liverpool um just before they had written one for london um and, and that was the kind of ken livingston era so all those things were were kind of in the background had been in the background at the same time and there was these lovely hot spots of urban wildlife in places like sheffield mm. birmingham was another hot spot um bristol um, and there was like beginnings of it you know there's exchanges between those groups at that time so you know groups were campaigning to for places like Gunnersbury Triangle in London, I remember, which is now, I think, you know, the, well, it's, it's a sort of nature reserve. And But people had to fight for those. And in a way, they were wilding landscapes in the city and were naturally colonised. And mm. so there was an early, you know, recognition of standing up for, you know, wildlife on what other people perceived as derelict land. And, you know, it was open for grabs. And it was changing the perceptions of that. So there were, uh, I think, one of the first sort of reports I got involved working with with land life was, um, you know, to 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 secure a right for you know sort of nature conservation to be a principle on derelict land, because um, previous to that everybody had just been wanting to just turn it into amenity grassland. Mm -hmm. So there's this recognition of like nature could be a part of like a you know, an old colliery site or something. It wasn't just trying to, to revert it back to an urban amenity landscape. Yeah. And so that all that stuff was really important. And again, there were hot spots and, and links between you know, different um, places in, in, around the country, really. And uh, there was a, what they called the Fair Brother Group, there's a, uh, which we were part of. And that, that was... A, um, a book by Nan Fairbrother that, that came out, a book by Nan Fairbrother, which is called New Lives, New Landscapes. Okay. And that, so, I've never heard of that. So that was a kind of seminal text back then, was it? Yeah, I think that was, that was certainly late seventies, early eighties. Um, and then there was, you know, the Malcolm Emery book about, you know, how to create habitats, which was a, almost like a little tome for people who are interested in it. Interesting, because when you're talking now, I'm thinking about uh, what is set off in my head about recently. Well, no, probably about 10, 15 years ago, where they, where unfortunately national policy was was all about building on brownfield and not on, you know, saving the green belt beyond belief, but not on the brownfield. And that was, uh, so they're kind of like, I guess we've perhaps gone back in, in certain ways, have we? Yeah, some ways we have, because it's, you know, it's like, it's, it's, you know, that you do, you know, you do in your career go through 
um, you know, similar scenarios at different times, really. And sometimes, for example, we visited projects. Uh, I mean, I've done that sort of 10 or 15 years later, been invited back to the same site after we probably suggested something like 15 years. And of course, the people and everything's changed, but um, the time has changed. And I think that's the key point, you know, it's wanted to make the best of, of the time, I think, really. Um, and not, not, you know, not forgetting all these, you know, like, pearls of wisdom from like uh, i suppose you'd say giant shoulders you know people yeah um, you know it's coming out it came out of that um meeting in colchester didn't they you know simple things like um you know the, the garden in leicester um that had been such a you know that had been applied for as a, an sssi you know the, the famous Jennifer Owens, isn't it? Yeah, it was great, and uh, that you know, so all that was part of that story, uh, you know, part of that narrative around that time. People were really excited, and people like Chris Baines and stuff were, you know, like from Birmingham was part of that, and it was it's really interesting um, um, that that kind of network of urban groups, which did start to get formalised within the wildlife trusts in places like Sheffield, for example, as a Sheffield um wildlife project that was initially very separate from the yorkshire wildlife trust and now that's very much more integrated hmm. so you so just to you were just saying that, that um those kind of informal networks you know back in the day have now basically been amalgamated into all the same people not, not everywhere, trust. and certainly certainly in places you know like many places i think certainly in, i think in bristol that happened quite a lot with the even wildlife trust and, and uh, um so it's it's it, again it was it was very distinctive the place and that was what was always nice about it you met some really interesting people in in different places mm. so but also for us i think it tied in very much with and that maybe wasn't so much you know like um for example the people in the urban wildlife groups that were interested in um you know urban wildlife but we were also kind of equally fascinated by um what was be regarded as urbanism which is slightly different in that you know like the, the people like for example jane jacobs who you know like uh, had worked for livable cities and the sort of community energy of the streets which you know we went you know we've been through this thing with town planning and it's it's very much i think the messages of what you can learn from those stories and it's interesting we've been working in everton um, for a lot over the last sort of 12 or 13 years and they went through two areas of town planning in terms of the terraces mm. and communities got you know knocked down in the late 60s early 70s the tower blocks came didn't last even until the 90s so they didn't even last 20 years and you know that the, the parkland we've been working on in everton park is is almost like a reflective legacy of, of of all the people that lived there because those people got moved and displaced i'm going to say that's a massive amount of upheaval and if, if if tower blocks didn't last 20 years what is that doing what is that doing to communities <laughs> Sorry, well the horrific things and it's happened the world over and it's still happening in terms of places like mumbai where they want to you know the, in terms of what are considered slums you know but it's it's so the jane jacobs thing was the sense of the energy on the street um so she wrote a book called the uh, the life i get it I'm, the death and life of american cities mm. um, which is you know is which challenged the 
you know which is which is what we have, we're kind of still um at the end you know the kind of reverse end of in terms of the beginnings of the powerful road lobby in terms of driving mm. highways through um community areas really so she she for example saved greenwich village she saved all the communities and the brownstones which people would think would have been completely sacrificed she she actually saved greenwich village from the bulldozers and a a, a major highway thoroughfare through that through that area well, yeah because with all that upheaval though i mean you know taking everton you know uh, um everton liverpool as an example so, so you feel that you played a, a role in uh using landscape to to foster that community to rebuild community yeah part of the healing process i suppose towards the end of that is is like and, and and it's really great that the wildflowers have been part of a i don't know if you'd call it a reconciliation or even um i know john rodwell is who's is actually he's who's the um architect of the national vegetation classification has has referred to it more as um almost like retribution you know in terms of how how we need to address these these things really in, in yeah. some ways but but it i think it's it is part of a healing process and it was interesting that the 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 kind of um vicar who who was who was a local vicar and um and witnessed um in a kind of high prominent position looking across all that um had seen all this kind of demolition and cycles of demolition and people moving away and mm. and actually did see that at the end of like 30 years of like being there sort of saw the wildflowers as a kind of um you know settling you know like a peaceful settling of what what had happened yeah. but it is quite shocking because you know the, the tower blocks didn't last 20 years but they were still paying for them for another 50 <laughs> and this this is what you know this is a kind of uh, what you know the, and it's it's repeat it's not a, it's not a situation that's you know most british cities have gone through that mm. and also like you know like rural communities in different ways it's you know it's it's the sense of what we have and not really appreciating it isn't it really mm. And with these communities, like perhaps coming full circle, with these communities, you know the the the, the abilities of these community, the abilities of these people within those communities to get out into the countryside maybe less. So is that sort of this the urban ecology, the urban wildlife, these urban meadows is, uh, you know, is the communities perhaps chance of getting in contact with nature yeah well i think it is that sense of like um and that's where you know i think it is terms like environmental justice is about delivering these things close close to people you know as so it was like rather than it being about um and that that's uh, you know, the sense of wilderness and the truth is that national parks in britain did follow the american model so they looked for the wilderness areas of the united kingdom and um and great you know and it's same with the sort of national nature reserves they pick the they're very good at picking the great hot spots of the you know like where nature was but in that vein it didn't really think about because this was you know coming out of suppose 1947 ish national parks and all of that so it's part of the same kind of post-war um kind of um sense of of, of 
you know bringing things back after the war i suppose but we also went through obviously a, you know like a very much agricultural revolution in the countryside so these places then became much more isolated mm. but you know it's it, it's it it is the fact that you know we could bring the benefits of nature close to people and um i still think that's 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 even now is 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 is, is quite hard to get across because the victorians could see it in this in the vein of you know creating public parks mm. and you know they did it in a way that probably wouldn't reflect you know sort of necessarily my ideas of like creative ecology but they did it in an impressive way that guaranteed public spaces of greenery and yeah, close yeah. to the center of most cities which is now you know would be you know is, is difficult to achieve um mm. so that, that, that's where it's you know it's it's exciting to, to kind of deliver things in the you know in the heart of places rather than just on the edges so you know certainly we've done we did you know a lot of work um um you know in the in the kind of edges of liverpool when we couldn't get the land to do it in the sort of close to the centers but had been involved and it wasn't my involvement at, in terms of the international garden festival in liverpool in 1984 because i didn't come to quite a bit after that but they you know they the wild garden at, at the international garden festival did actually win the prize of honor so there was there was that badge of doing things like that again around that time um and strangely, even though the, the garden festival site, like all the garden festivals, um, that and Liverpool was the first, and there was Glasgow and Ebervale and Stoke-on-Trent. I think, I think that was it. I think, um, but they, 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 the vision was to kind of create a, a sense of you know like a, a garden festival, but it, it, the idea was it wasn't really much more than a year. Okay. So, yeah so and and in in it's interesting for example then the, the eden project in a way picked up on that in the sense of why couldn't you have a permanent garden festival which was mm. what we did um remind me when did the eden project kick off or when was it kind of a, like initiated in it was it was millennium 10. commission so it was initiated late 90s really 97 98 that's when you had to kind of start bidding and put in proposals yeah mm. so we we applied the national wildflower center at the same time so in a way we were eden project cousins because we both went through that kind of <coughs> judging process ours was you know kind of a much smaller yeah um in terms of um you know what we wanted to do but it, it was you know it was a sense and it was a surprise to some because it was the you know the thought of you know if, if people said where would you put a national wildflower center i guess a lot of people wouldn't have said Liverpool, <laughs> but, but we did do it in one of the you know like sort of most socially deprived boroughs in the country mm -hmm. um and and you know had a very happy existence there for 20, 20 odd years mm -hmm. um but it is just adding up energies isn't it really and showing what you can do sorry adding up what sorry adding up kind of energies yeah uh, yeah and um in practical ways which is why it would be always you know i suppose I've been always been interested in things like those, you know, things we've talked of, like urbanism. Mm. And um, you learn by, you know, from different professions, whether it be architects or artists, or you know, it's you know, and you don't necessarily always disagree with people's viewpoints, but you learn in that kind of interchange. And I think that's always been. We've never just seen ourselves as, 
you know, ecologists or conservationists or wanting to preserve a particular piece of land, it's always been open to kind of ideas mm. and where you could put things, you know. I don't think I've ever, in every podcast, every episode, we always, we always touch on this about people working within silos. And I knew, I knew that phrase would be used at Beth Chateau Symposium and people talk about not working inside silos, but a lot of people still do. So it's really nice that you've, you know, you've been, you've been through that process. You're going through that process of just being really open to other people's ideas, other people's views, like you say. You may not agree with them. You may think, you know, th that they've missed the point, but you're still allowing yourself to be open to, to new ways of doing things and other opinions. It's really nice to hear. Yeah. People do have to go through the journeys themselves as well. You know, like, a, uh, you know, to, you know, is experiencing things for yourself and it's nice to be told about it, but you know, it's that, it's that honing your craft or, um, Craftivism is a word we quite like in terms of this nice kind of nice idea about what craftivism is now. Um, and in terms of how people, you know, there's, there's a, for example, there's a craftivist collective. Um, and there's, you know, it's is about sort of the gentle art of protest and showing you can do things in a different way and do it well and, um, uh, and change people's minds, basically. We always liked the phrase, um, all you can sing about is what you have seen, which was actually from Woody Guthrie. It's kind of a folk singer thing. But, you know, then, then you work with, you know, groups who are blind and you realise that, you know, it, it's it's all kinds of things that, you know, awaken people's interest. And this St. Vincent's Blind School, who we've worked with a fair bit over the last three years in um close to Notty Ash actually which is is a real place it's in kind of Notty Ash West Derby in Liverpool and they've just got an incredible attitude of being like climate activists and mm. wanting to create you know jobs for themselves with um, green agendas that they can pass on to other people uh, and you know incredible spirit but the, the the thing is they because they're not Ofsted registered they they have this ability to go off piste and, okay. and so they're actually able to demonstrate more creative ways of working than uh, um, to other kind of what would be seen as normal schools but they're actually leading that that light really which is was really impressive and, and more specifically how have you got involved with them in terms of what bringing wildflowers well, in through, through seeds actually we did a we did a project on their school grounds and uh, they um straight away and the, they're very yeah, they've done creative things in a whole manner of arenas, really. But straight away, they 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 we we helped them harvest it. Took our combine and and, and they they had a bag of seed, but it was what they wanted to do with that bag of seed. So they took that to COP twenty six and on on their own volition with um, which I didn't get. Uh, and but it, you know, it's for a group like that. It's it's like this Paul Revere effect. So that the, apparently there was lots of people who rode off in America shouting the British are coming, you know, we should... <laughs> <laughs> nobody remembers. It wasn't just Paul Revere for some reason. They kind of remember Paul Revere and it's this kind of ability to kind of awaken interest in, in, in what, what people should do. Mm. And they've certainly got that spirit. So they, they, they met while they were in, um, in Glasgow, the president of Costa Rica, they were in communication with, um, Yoko, you know, and as a result, when since they came back, and um, 
they went and with Yoko's permission and the National Trust, they went and sowed wildflowers, which we'd collected with them in John Lennon's garden in uh, Menlove Avenue. So it, it opened again, it just opened another door, which, you know, is, you know, National Trust world or whatever, but mm. they opened that door. You know, we didn't, they, they did it themselves. Oh, what a lovely story. So they've got this thing called Seeds of Hope, which links to, you know, ideas of, you know, how you pass on seeds to other people. And which we've we've really um, liked talking about the idea of seed as a currency and it fits yeah. really nicely with that. Uh, um, so, and you know, but, but that, you know, that kind of meeting was almost by chance, you know, in terms of how we, how we came across them through a particular council and thing. And, and that's really nice. And so, um, you know, you talk about, you know, seed as a current currency, the, that kind of, um, I was going to talk about this later, actually, but we talk about it now that, you know, the, the circular economy about, you know, how we can, you know, how we can use the seed within that circular economy, how technically speaking as well, how we can use that resource because wildflower seeds, you probably know yourself are. How can I put this? There's quite a lot of strain on wildflower seed resources at the moment, isn't there? Yeah. So, you know, they're expensive and it's, 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 you know, like in the past, it was, there wasn't as much demand now because of all this nature recovery, there's, there is actually a real shortage. And it's, again, it's, there's two things. It's used, making sure that the valuable seed isn't wasted. So it's about, you know, how to use it well. Um, can we sit on that point for a bit in your opinion, in your opinion, uh, uh, do you think, well, do you think a lot of the seed is being wasted? I mean, that's a very leading question. No, I do, <laughs> I do actually, yeah. No, and it's, it's when you put, you know, it's like, particularly if you've been involved in producing it, which we have for quite a long time, you know, like, uh, you know, the, it is, it is precious to just go through that process of, of, you know, getting a big sack of seed, whether it be field scabious or something else. Um, and so when you see it used badly, it hurts because <laughs> you think, well, it's not going to last very long, you know, yeah, fades away. And so is that thing about opportunity and making the most of it. Mm. But, um, you know, the thing with them as well is, so it's this thing about using things well, but it's also, you know, for example, huge, you know, uh, cuts in public parks. So the dreams to put biodiversity into public parks you know, needs help in terms of sustainability of how you can do it. So if you can generate um, seed in public spaces and get joy from that, and then, you know, be able to give proportions back to, to, to the community groups and local authority in that area for them to, to, to leapfrog into other places um, is, is, is interesting, I think. So do you, on that, on that point, do you see that that's happening um, I mean, I know it's obviously happening in Liverpool. It's probably happening in Sheffield as well. I mean, are those sort of clusters still there where, you know, where seeding has been, has been grown on community land and has been fed back in, or is that just a very. I think it's probably not, it's probably not common. I mean, I think it's certainly something we've, we've been doing here in terms of places like Walton Hall Park, really Croxteth Hall Park. Um, there's a place called the Rimrose Valley uh, in terms of group there and some of those groups you know we've harvested seed and you know we can use that for our own projects and it has got a commercial value but it means that those 
um, those groups themselves can, you know, effectively earn earn some money, but they've also got seed to put back into their own park, so they're not having to buy it in. So it's that's I think that's where it becomes interesting, and um, in terms of how you can network groups, and they have these broad, you know, like strategic networks. For example, the Northern Forest is one across Northern England. Well. You know, we've, which you might touch on later, is we've done quite a lot of work with the Woodland Trust, which we've really enjoyed and is quite uh, extraordinary. And you know, in terms of the ground preparation, but you know, in terms of how you build resources across a region, I think could be more exciting than just reliant on like straightforward um, commercial transactions, really. And it, it and it does relate very much to communities. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, there's been an awful lot of, you know, ecological conferences and I've been to some and there's, you know, been a very good one actually in Spain, in Alicante recently um, with, the, you know, the title, you know, like reconnecting people and nature. But we have to make sure those those phrases actually, you know, mean that that's happening rather than just be the theme of a of a conference and be everybody say it's a good thing to do it's it's proof of the pudding stuff isn't it uh it is and um i'm trying to be diplomatic here really i think that well let's stick on it i mean i think the messaging of the recent conference that where we went to again it got lost it got it was a very confused narrative and it was very confused about, well, what does, you know, there's the buzzword of rewilding and what that means and what that means to other people and, you know, getting people back in touch with nature and without a real focus on demographic, it was more, it was more broad terms, I thought, really. Yeah. Yeah. It is. I mean, it's like, I mean, Grant, uh, we used to, what we always used to say, the devil's in the detail, you know, mm. and it's true. And, um, and like, likewise, when people say things like, you know, it's, there's hard to reach communities. Well, I, I, I don't really believe there's hard to reach communities. I think it's about um, reach, <laughs> reaching them or just meeting them. I, I, to be honest, all the time I've worked, yeah. uh, <laughs> I, met, I don't think I've ever met a hard to reach community, really because um, there's always somebody's door you can knock on them. i know I should, I'm, I'm not I'm, I should, I'm laughing because again there's there's uh i've heard that phrase in, in cambridge where i live been used a thousand times and it's like uh it's a community you know cambridge is very it's very split you know you have some of the you know i suppose you can imagine you've got you know some of the wealthiest parts of of england and some of the poorest parts and it's like oh the hard to reach communities in cambridge well mm, there's a great example of uh, European funding for a tree planting project um, and um, other biodiversity projects in and around that community. And it was like, you just, again, you just have to ask, you have to knock on doors, you have to speak to people that you don't normally, or people don't normally speak to. It's not, it's, yeah, it's not a hard task. <laughs> it really isn't. No, and, and the th truth is a lot of, and it's understandable, you know, in terms of if you're like a sort of an academic working in ecology or whatever, um, which, you know, is fascinating and, and obviously you can go as deep as you go in different ways, but 
um i think given the, the nature of the times we're in i think you know it's kind of there is kind of a social responsibility if you believe um that it's good to you know to to use creative ecology or you know practice um bring in you know nature into the city as a as an objective whether it be carbon um you know action for carbon capture or you know biodiversity nature recovery you know all those kind of green infrastructure those phrases that people use you have to kind of make that step yourself in your own way in terms of the way you work and operate rather than i know you know i've had that those conversations with um you know ecological restoration um scientists who think the social scientists will give them that bridge you know we, we're doing our bit Mm. and the social scientists and there should be education and there should be you know social scientists who will help us in this endeavor well from my experience i've never witnessed that and it's always been the you know the people who have been interested in doing projects who have who've made that link themselves yeah yeah so it's changing yeah, you're right. I think we do have a social responsibility. You get, you do have to social social responsibility and personal responsibility. You have to you have to kind of do it, don't you? You can't just wait for the for the other to sort of you know those councils. You know, like you know, for example, I mean, Liverpool's an example, but it's the same. You know, pretty much everywhere. I'm sure in terms of youth services or all these things that would have existed at a higher level in the past. You know that those networks are really, really seriously depleted. So there aren't the, the you know, the social workers, if you like, to, to help fill that gap anyway. Um, um, it's tough for schools. It's tough for like syllabuses, which is why St. Vincent's school is such an amazing school to break, break down those barriers. Um, it's the one thing that unfortunately at the Beth Chateau symposium, there wasn't enough time dedicated to it, but the social prescribing, you know, I think that, I think that could, that could have actually been a, a, a symposium subject all on its own about the social prescribing. Um, do you, and do you find there's much of that in around Liverpool and Everton or again? There's, there's, there's a real demand for it in the sense of it's, it's a great thing, but I, I also know, um, work with, um, Christine Long actually in Bootle, we did a nice, worked with a nice project together which was, you know, was really, really positive. But, you know, she was telling me and actually fed it back to one of the, um, um, one of the social prescriber advocates at the, at the conference. And she agreed. And Christine was saying that, you know, well, what's happening is because they're, you know, they're busy doing like, you know, really good sort of creative horticulture, ecology, um, involving a lot of people, but, but, you know, like if, um, there's a danger that people then expect to, to to socially prescribe and and put those additional demands on somebody like Christine who hasn't got um, who does a lot of this kind of stuff already but hasn't got medical skills or you know and they're talking about prescription for people with particular illnesses and so there has to be you know like support for that seriously and and um, I think it was it was julia the person um, i was talking to at colchester it was you know a serious research on that and she said it's had to be you know done properly you know there's a danger that 
effectively social prescription can be a form of effectively dumping in, in terms of you know like putting a, additional pressure on people who are already working and and that's you know that's something we need to be aware of i think really because it, it these things are about particularly when people have been seriously ill you know mental problems and things it's 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 a serious thing um and it needs to be done well I think it was, I think it was, uh, Sue Stuart Smith that said without the, the, um, the therapist, no therapy right. can happen. Yeah. yeah. I think it was probably her who told me that actually, you know, so I had that short conversation with her and I think it is, it's just, it's just doing things well, isn't it? But on simple levels, you know, like going back quite a long time, I remember in Kirby where we did some really, um, and it, it's fascinating in a way because a lot of the communities that got moved from Everton, um, got moved out to Kirby as one of the, you know, there's the, there's these lost tribes that went to different places. Mm. And um, we had after this, you know, like, you know, community wildflower projects, but the, the, in, this was in Northwood in Kirby and the time, you know, unemployment was like 60% or something. And it was, it was you know, like a, a, an area with a lot of, um, you know, problems connected with poverty was um, the health practice completely, um, you know, we didn't, we, did, we hadn't had any contact with them. They just sort of sent, sent us a letter and just said they would like us to know what we'd done had, had uplifted the spirit of the community, you know. So it's it's anecdotal, but, and there were pictures, they put pictures of the of the fields and things inside the, the practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it, anecdotal, but again, I, I'm just thinking, you know, we, we're, this is the biodiversity podcast and we haven't talked about biodiversity as such, but the power, but the, but the power of biodiversity, it, you know, floral biodiversity, you know, um, fauna biodiversity it, it is, the, is the key though, isn't it? It's the key to unlock a lot, a lot of this, what, uh, to unlock some of the wider issues, uh, societal issues. And it is that thing about seeing is believing. And I think some of the, you know, areas we've created in the past and, you know, we keep creating different places, not just in Liverpool and, you know, done big areas in Cornwall and um, it's, it's and particularly stuff with the Woodland Trust, which we, you know, we, when we delivered, we delivered with, you know, local people and things. And when you go back sort of 15 years later and there's that kind of legacy, mm. um, it, it's, 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 it's great to see and i think it's that infectious thing that people need to see as possible you know in terms of a process that can happen in a place um but they do you know it's the it's, and it's all those points that john little was making about care uh you know about care and long term and and the you know the the paucity of resources that are devoted to the simple things which makes things so much more special well let's just let's just i mean again i don't think i've got through a podcast on any subject without talking about this, you know, but it has to be talked about, you know, there is, and to quote John, there's so much money or relatively so much money for capital to install everything and make it look shiny, make it look new. And then there's no money for the, for the gardeners. There's no money for limited money for, for upkeep. And it's, and it's, I just think it's so perverse and like, you know, why don't we value maintenance? Why don't we value management? Why don't we fit, you know? Why, why, you know, why do people value garden designers? And then when it comes to gardeners, they're, you know, they're somehow, you know, 
people will pay for garden designers, landscape architects, but you pay a gardener, what, 12 pound an hour, 10 pound an hour. And it's like, and I think it's, it's, it's perverse. And, and, and it's really interesting. You mentioned about sort of legacy, how many projects have you guys worked on where there is legacy and you go back 15 years later and it's, and it's still functioning and the, you know, the meadows work, but how many projects go by the wayside after six months, a growing season, you know? It used to be, it used to be, you used to see those programs, didn't you? When they did the, um, the garden makeovers, <laughs> you know, yeah. it was, you know, and they used to go back sometimes and they were just complete disasters, weren't they? Cause you know, they would, you know, people just, you know, they'd installed them and uh, obviously, and it, it's the same on a bigger scale, isn't it? It's like, you know, you know, if, unless you've got a mechanism of care, um, and it, it, the whole system, you know, in terms of the way it's geared for simple management and, you know, like, um, and we're working with, you know, to convince, you know, for example, locally here in Liverpool, just to, to get them to cut them at the right time. And, uh, but it's hard, you know, and, and the, the, the guys, you know, the, the, the conversations you can have with the guys who are driving the tractors, they want to know more. They want to make their jobs more interesting. Yeah. Yes. And I'll, I'll, I'll stop you there because, um, two examples of this so uh it is hard but it's not impossible because we um uh spoke with a guy going back a couple of years ago now uh works for the suffolk uh county council um his name his name uh can't remember his name but he he's been spearheading uh a uh pardon the weeds we're feeding the bees and he's been working with uh suffolk uh district council and then leaving um, the first year they did it, which was back in 2020, they left 50 areas where they didn't cut. Now it's 140, um, areas they're not cutting, which is really, which has been great because it's freed up the guy's time. So they were cutting, you know, once, twice a year, which has freed up the guy's time enough for them to, uh, be spraying weeds, but, but not with Roundup with a foam. You know, so you're not spraying all this nasty herbicide, but they can spray the weeds twice a year with this foam, um, because they've got a bit more time to do all these tasks. And, and you're right. The guys on the mowers as well are looking for that guidance. Um, <clears throat> again, there's a really, um, the Cambridge County council recently employed a guy that, um, Yes, but, you know, working under the biodiversity officer there, he's been, he's been working with the guys on the, on the ground. Um, and yes, they're, they're hungry to know when to cut. They're hungry to know, you know, what they're cutting or what they're not cutting and why they're not cutting. So it is, it is doable. It really is doable. And I think, you know, just simply, if you have a conversation, you know, like, cause when, when we've been, you know, marking out a new area or, or, you know, like aware that, you know, there's a guy in a tractor where close to where we've been working you know just to take the trouble to kind of knock on their cab window and, and you know just say uh, you know we've been doing these and you know did you know about it and and you know invariably the conversation ends with well i'm glad you told me about this because um you know I, i've learned you know just because you've had a conversation with me and it's 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 i suppose it's management style isn't it it's just the way that um quite simply you could you know people just want to feel their viewpoints you know accounted for you know heaven forbid you know i mean it's it's it's, it's bizarre that the conversations we're actually talking like this because it should be natural you know we should want to it's just it, 
kind of decency, you know, common decency, really, you know, enga engaging people, you know, I hate the phrase, but engaging all stakeholders in the process. Well, so I think, you know, there could be a very nice craftivist, peaceful revolution of care, couldn't there, really, in, in practical ways. Say so, okay, sorry? To a, like a, a peaceful craftivist revolution of, of care. <laughs> uh yeah um but it does in a way need to be a revolution i think probably but <laughs> well certainly it's certainly need we certainly need to 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 yeah have a revolution in the way we, we value stuff and i and i do i do find it i can only talk from personal experience how i do find it is perverse where you know stuff that you know i'm designing and, you know, and this is, you know, you hear anecdotally, you know, other landscape architects, other garden designers, it's just, there is no, there is no care. There is no, there is no mechanism, real, me real mechanism for care other than, I don't know, via a management agent. And then well, that doesn't need normally work out <laughs> or, you know, again, it's that other, it's that other step away from again, you know metaphorically tapping on somebody's window and saying oh have you have you seen this do you want to know do you want to learn more do you want to do you want to um do you want to be involved with the process um yeah sod no it's always worth it's always worth somebody's opinion just like that but we you know and we but it's hard to win time for those people to have a conversation with those um you know those people in a room we've been you know like trying to do that um, you know, with with different, you know, the, the landscape teams in Liverpool. I've done. I mean, I've certainly done training days for Cornwall County Council. We've done them for Liverpool and Manchester in small ways in the past. But you know, they they they're not really allowed time to 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 do that. You know, and if you want to do it, it's always the time when it's perceived as too busy. You know, can't possibly let them go for a day. You know, that kind. Of <laughs> So, well, it seems very short-sighted, but I guess, I, well, it's short-sighted, but everybody's under so much pressure that perhaps haven't got the headspace to really give these things some thought, you know, to really think about uh, how it would be, you know, on balance and time efficient, you know, it? to do it to a good level and make people, you know, like, give them like a uh, an accreditation in terms of, you know, for example, in an MVQ and, you know, like caring for, for these landscapes in in urban spaces so that you know they feel part of a team and you know we we certainly know that when we've cast you know there's been you know that when we've been hoping to run one of these training day that people have really wanted to do them you know there's been key people and you know the thing is to start building little teams that can be you know like strengthened um, and i think that that's the worry and the danger that you know there's these hot spots of of you know places where um it's going you know there's there's a bit more activity and um, people are seeing something happening and it might be you know sheffield and associated with like nigel dunnett you know like john little's work or mm. you know it's, it's, um i don't know if you call maybe islands of sanity I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but you know like it's how do you you know like and but often those people are you know um you know are, are also struggling to be recognized in the in 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 a in a different sense to kind of within their own localities and it, you know like that's that's the other strange thing isn't it it's sometimes so a couple of things though that 
that, that, that come up from that is, you know, for, for, for every John Little, you know, for every Nigel Dunnett, you know, they are, they're figureheads, you know, there is, you know, even, even since I've known John Little the last what, three or four years, you know, see how his work and the way he presents his work has been inspiring. But the thing that also, also comes up is the word volunteers. You know, how many times, how many times have you heard throughout the years? How many times did you hear at that conference? Oh, the wonderful volunteers, the wonderful volunteers. Oh, we've got some glorious volunteers. Um, and it takes, you know, it takes a, I don't know, it takes a John Little working for probably peanuts for a number of years to get where he was and how many people can do that. Yeah, no, you know, and it's, you know, it's, it's hard over a long period of time and, um, and it's frustrating as well, you know, like, you know, like if you want to find a way to, to kind of pass something on, to do that in a way that people will really show the same spirit and, um, keep, you know, keep that going really. And I think that's the challenge, you know, and, um, but it's an important one, that's for sure. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, I mean, perhaps, you know, perhaps I'm just on, I'm in my little bubble and perhaps there are more these, these hot spots. I'm sure there's. No, I think, it, no, I think you're right. It's, it's like, but it's important that they, you know, that, which is why when you see, you know, when you see the, the you know, the, the kind of the great Dixter system and, um, you know, this is this idea about communities of gardeners, and but it is also respecting, you know, the, the gardener as a profession you know like a, and you know like you infer in terms of the way people are paid and you know in, in you know for example in holland um you know gardening is and, and horticulture is seen as a profession where you know here it can be used as almost like a derogatory term you know yeah you're just a gardener and i've seen you know i've seen conservationists do that in the same vein um and just to give an example you know in terms of the you know we had a long connection with the which were mentioned actually at Colchester, which was nice. And, uh, um, I talked to the, um, the, the kind of, uh, landscape architect from, from Amsterdam who, who knew all about those places, of course, mm. and had mentioned them in his own presentation, but you know, they, they, that work is, is like a gold standard in, in many ways. And, uh, but I, I, I've met some Dutch ecological restoration people, and I said, "Oh, you, you know, have you, you know, do you, do you, what do you, you know, have you been and, you know, do you talk to talk to the Amstelveen um, ecological parks people at all?" And they, I think they actually said, "Oh, they're just gardens," you know. <laughs> you think, and they're both they're probably some of the best ecologists I've ever met, ever, you know. Mm. Uh, and there is that, you know, there is that kind of arrogance, and you know, I think we you know that Richard Boys in some ways in terms of um in terms of some of the projects that were talked about in colchester there is that sense that it is a clash of, of of worlds you know like you know for example you know in terms of budgets and and what people have got at hand you know some of our best project work has been done for you know buttons and Remember, I remember you saying you're scratching around because when you, you're scratching around for a couple of grand here a couple of grand there and it's like no, I mean, the project work in Liverpool, thankfully, has been, you know, in, uh, in terms of a cross-party sense as well, but in terms of the, you know, the the the, the councillors have, have 
have individually dedicated ward budgets um, over the past few years, and particularly through the pandemic, which is really extraordinary um, because there's you know a lot of demands, uh, and you know like in terms of money and and availability and other priorities, obviously. So, but it has been really very popular. So the, this kind of idea of a Scouse flower house. Mm. Has, has been really significant for us and and that actually you mentioned um incidentally like at the beginning just in terms of your day you mentioned trampolining and and the guy who actually came up with the <laughs> the guy who actually came up with the scouse flowers because we were you know we were we, we were talking about the northern flower house quite a lot which which is 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 a good is it which we you know still use um and that is really kind of a uh, I suppose an antidote to the kind of idea of the very hard-edged idea of a northern powerhouse. Mm, so yeah. it, it came out of a joke at Friends of Everton Park meeting, and somebody said, "Oh, we're the northern, we're the northern flowerhouse now." Not, you know, <laughs> so we liked that, but it was it was um, Bradley, but but he'd been world number two trampoline champion. He'd been he was number two junior trampoline champion in the world, and he it was him who actually said, "Well." Why didn't you? Why didn't you talk about in Liverpool particularly talk about Scouse Flowerhouse? And that has been like a <laughs> driven a momentum, which has been really helpful, you know. And it takes you away from these glib terms like green infrastructure and green and blue landscapes, <laughs> <laughs> which don't which yes. which don't get me wrong, are significant in kind of planning. Well, I'm I'm laughing because I've you know you kind of I, I laughing with a little bit of embarrassment because you. I, I end up using these words in conversations and I'm thinking, well, I'm saying it because I want to sound a bit, I, know, I want to sound clever, but you know, kind of, does it really engage people? Do you know what I mean? Do, does... Well, that's why, that's why it was the reason it was done for to engage with serious planning strategy. But, you know, for the people who've been through that, like the people in Everton, do they really want to hear about green infrastructure when they've had two sets of demolition in the past 40 years? Do they really trust, you know, some of that you know, planning um, strategic talk? Probably not very no. much. Really. <laughs> no. But no, they do just... love the Scouse Flowerhouse and, and the idea of, like, it becoming personal and making it personal. Mm. Yeah. So, <clears throat> Richard, what we're going to do now is um is uh, we can't talk we can't be talking about communities we can't be talking about wildflowers uh, and not um and not put some slides up so what I'll, what I'll do is I'm going to put some slides up and then uh some of the work you be you guys have been doing um because again let's see the scouse flower house uh in uh in uh, technicolor 